Happy Saturday, guys, and welcome to another episode of Let's Talk Dubs. I'm your host, Bill T. I know you thought I forgot about you, but unfortunately, I'm out on vacation with the family, and I had one ready to drop, just needed to load the intro, and the week got away from me, didn't get a chance to do it, but I'm getting it out to you guys on Saturday. This week is a great podcast, we'll get into that in a minute, but before we get into that, there is seven weeks left until Let's Talk Dubs One Crazy Weekend, which is going to be the most incredible event that you can have with your clothes on in your Volkswagen. It's going to be taking place October 7th and 8th in Las Vegas, Nevada, hosted at the Orleans Hotel Casino, brought to you by Finley Volkswagen. This event includes Friday night meet and greet with a strip cruise, as well as a car show on Saturday. Car show's over at about 1 o'clock. All the VWs are secured in a big lot. Everybody can hang out and mingle. Then at 5.30 to six o'clock we kick off the world famous poker run where i give away a couple thousand dollars in cash money that night to a couple lucky participants it's a great time it's an awesome event to be at with some of your favorite vw people so come check it out uh, register make sure you go to letstalkdubs.com website click on the showtime link that'll have your room code discount and the link to the orleans hotel you know book your rooms today before it's too late i don't want you guys telling me that you weren't able to get a room in time and all this business there's plenty of time right now get your room locked in today all right it's coming up it'll be here before you know it don't forget i look forward to seeing all you guys at the one crazy weekend coming up now let's not forget about our sponsors this podcast is brought to you by vw trends magazine a magazine for the people and by the people back on the scene after long hiatus vw trends magazine is your go-to magazine for a diverse cross-section of the vw scene There's a wide variety of VWs available to check out, even water-cooled in there, and a lot of how-tos. A great magazine back on the scene after a long hiatus. So check them out at vwtrendsmagazine.com. Subscribe today at vwtrendsmagazine.com. We've seen it before. Aftermarket distributor clamps that won't stay tight, ones that are bulky and incorrectly pinched or even clamps with gimmicky timing marks that are useless. Ross Wolf has solved that problem. They've built a simple, attractive, and functional distributor clamp that won't fail. Simply put, Ross Wolf's distributor clamp is the finest available and most reliable way to secure your distributor. They use T6061 T6 aluminum that's the strongest structural steel, and they engineer the unit to clamp evenly across the surface. Ross Wolf has clamps for Type 1 and Type 2 engines, as well as Type 3, even a clamp for running MSD-style distributors on Type 3s and Type 4s. So guys, get your distributor dialed in, get it locked down, and get it looking good with a Ross Wolf distributor clamp. Go check them out at rosswolf.com. That's rosswolf.com, purveyors of speed and style. Now, today's show, if you guys know anything about Volkswagen performance racing and history out of Orange County, you know who Fred Simpson is. Fred Simpson had a business called Performance Technologies. He was the developer of the SHO heads, which all the big-time drag racers were using those heads. They were a stock-style casting that was modified to get huge ports and big valves. And this week's episode, we get down in the weeds on head design, development, performance, engine characteristics, and all that stuff. So if you guys like technical detail, this is the one for you. But a cool story is that one of the things you'll find out in the beginning is that he joined uh, Volkswagen just in, in 1967 as an option that the U.S. government put out there for people to enlist in jobs that there was a shortage of. So it's an interesting story from that respect. Started out factory trained at the VW. Uh, started out being factory trained by Volkswagen and then moved on into the performance world. It's a great story. He's connected to a lot of people in the industry. And it's uh, it's it's a good podcast for sure. So I know you guys will enjoy it. So this week, let's get into it with Fred Simpson, Performance Technologies on Let's Talk Dubs. 
Volkswagen that's big enough. The new VW Fastback Sedan. The Fastback also has the most powerful engine we've ever made. It's air-cooled. That's a little roomier in the inside. And in the back, where most cars have their trunks, we have a... Come into your Volkswagen dealer. He'll show you where the motor is. Okay, everybody. So on today's show, in Southern California for a long time, there was always your go-to guys for performance. And in those names of the who's who of performance... There is Fred Simpson, and Fred Simpson is with Performance Technologies. He's been he's been around forever and a day, and he's been there in the beginning, and he's there today, and that's who I'm excited to have on the podcast today. Fred, welcome to the show. Well, thanks, Bill, for having me. So the way we always start the podcast, and we know you've got a long history in performance and, and high performance and head manufacturing and, and porting all that stuff, but the way we always start the podcast is What's your VW story, and how did you get into Volkswagens? Oh, man, uh, that's kind of a wild one. Um, I graduated high school in uh, 67, and uh, at that particular time, the high schools, you either went to college or you went to work, and the high schools had uh, vocational training. And by the time I graduated high school, I had six years of auto shop. Oh, wow. And, yeah, I was a motorhead for long before I was ever able to drive. Nice. Uh, My brother, he had, I don't know, probably 50 different cars. Uh, My dad changed cars every three years. So uh, it was in my blood. So when I got out of high school... I wasn't going to college. So uh, at that particular time, the average age for auto mechanics nationwide was 55 years of age. Wow. And the federal government actually came up with a program, and they dealt with Volkswagen. And what it was, I remember 67 was also the Vietnam War. Right. So this was a draft deferrable three-year program. Really? So, yeah. So when you're right out of high school, uh, the last thing you want to do is go to a foreign country in a jungle and fight. Right. So uh, this was legal. Everything was above board. And I was actually able to secure a position in that apprenticeship program. And there were only 300 of us that went through it. But uh, after it was ended, uh, you were actually a licensed journeyman mechanic. Really? Yeah. So it worked out pretty good for me because I was able to do something that I was actually interested in. And uh, there were actually two programs. One was VW, and the other one was as a mortician. Oh, yikes. (laughs) Yeah. My wife, who I was going with at the time, said that if I was a mortician, 
she'd never let me touch her again. Right. So I that's picked funny. Volkswagen. Well, that's and so you're working. You start out apprenticing for Volkswagen. Where do you? Where's your first dealership, or where do you first go to work as a Volkswagen tech? Oh, that was Aero Volkswagen in Inglewood. And Aero Volkswagen at the time was so close to Volkswagen of America there in Culver City mm -hmm. that they were the go-to dealership for almost anything that VOA wanted. So uh, one thing about the program was they would send you to VOA for classes and the classes were everything from front end, transmission, engine, uh, electrical, fuel injection. And every time you went, you had a, a VW passport. And they would stamp your passport just like a regular one, except it gave the history of all the classes that you uh, participated in. Oh, wow. So do you, do you still have your passport? Well, yes, I do. <laughs> I need a picture of that for the podcast. That's for sure. I think that's a pretty cool thing. So, so as you get specific training on front ends or transmissions or whatever, you'd get a stamp in that book saying you completed that course. That's correct. Wow. And any, and any time you went to another dealership, you didn't have to really, you know, you'd talk to the service manager and you know maybe the shop foreman, but you show them your passport. And they were able to check and see all of the classes that you had. And if you had enough, you're pretty much hired on the spot. And you could kind of justify your pay, right? If you're just coming in out the door and you've got this passport full, filled out, I mean, you'd be worth more than a newbie, right? Well, you see, back then, uh, everybody was on commission. Oh, nice. So the more you knew, the more you were able to do and make more money. So you would work you would work book time or flag time as they'd call it. Oh yeah, yeah, flat rate time. So you could make some and, money if, if you got if I mean when we have people with a record holding of you know two minutes to drop a motor and you get in the rhythm at a dealership and you're pulling one out in let's say twenty thirty minutes, you know, I mean pulling a motor would pay probably what hour and a half or something. Uh yeah, you, you, you got paid about an hour and a half to R and R an engine. Yeah, so. The more you, the more proficient you got, the the more money you'd make. And then what what type what was a typical day working in the dealership like? What 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 were some of the stuff you liked doing, and what did you really dread doing on the Volkswagens? Well, uh, electrical repair is probably the worst thing you could ever do at a dealership because you get paid for the job. So if car comes in and it doesn't start and you finally trace it down to the ignition switch. But you have to check everything. You got to start with the battery. You got to check the points, uh, you know, charge the battery if it's low. And by the time you finally trace it out, you've got three hours or three days. Right. You get paid for the switch. Oh, wow. <laughs> so <laughs> so, the, so uh, the hunting was on you. electrical. Yeah. yeah. And then what, what were the, like back in those days, so it's 67, let, let's say it's the early, late 60s, early 70s, you're working the dealerships? Oh, yeah. And uh, what, what, are, what are the typical I, things that you see coming in? Like what, what was the most common thing you'd see? I mean, usually in dealerships, cars have kind of a pretty repetitive thing where either it's a, 
you know, an owner screw up or, you know, something that was, you know, that's the way the card thing works. So what were, what were the most common things you would see? Well, the most common thing back in 67, 68 was new car prep because, uh, none of the cars came with radios. Uh, some of the cars later on didn't come with chrome around the windshield. Uh, and the people wanted the chrome around the windshield and around the windows. So you had to prep them. You had to uh, install the stereos, the speakers, uh, do the new car prep. Uh, the most profitable uh, operation in the dealership was the lube and oil rack. Oh, really? Oh, yeah, because you could do 15, you know, between 15, 20 cars a day yeah. on the new brack, and you get paid for what you do. So it's quick, in and out, easy, repetitive. Uh, you don't have to think too much. Uh, the hardest part was doing front end. Uh, that was a real problem because it worked out actually pretty good until it rained. Oh, really? And then, oh, yeah. When it rained, it, people in California don't know how to drive in wet weather. <laughs> right. So uh, they kept running into curbs, uh, doing all kinds of crazy things. Front ends had come in bent, trailing arms, spindles. Uh, so you have to fix all of that, then align everything back up again. Uh, that was kind of a pain. Yeah, and then... How long are you? So you work at Aero VW this whole time, or do you hop around from a couple shops? Or uh, no, no, I, I I worked at about five different agencies. Oh, okay. So uh, Aero is where I uh, served my apprenticeship. After that, I went to uh, Gardner Anderson in uh, Compton, and then from Gardner Anderson, uh, went to uh, Atlantic Volkswagen in East LA, then. Oh, uh, I went to an agency in Watts. Mm -hmm. uh, then I finally wound up at Clee Harrison Volkswagen in uh, Long Beach. And that was the last agency I ever worked work for. Now, how do you start getting into the VWs as on the performance side of things? Oh, that didn't come for a long time. Really? Uh, so you were mostly just, yeah. it, it was, it was the bread and butter job for you. It was just what you did. Right. You know, I had to have a job. I had a family. You know, you got to provide. So mm -hmm. you do what you know. And I knew Volkswagen because I, I'd been with it since I was 18. So, uh, like I said, I've always been into cars. And the first car, when I had my driver's license, now back in 67, you got a paper license. And that was a temporary license until your license came in the mail. Um, I had my paper license for two weeks. My father bought a 65 Falcon Ranchero, brand new, the same day I got my license. After that two weeks, I stuffed it into three park cars. Oh, yikes. Uh, I was racing a guy... 
and he forced me into the three-part cars. Oh, that's crazy. Well, that kind of shows you how I was. I, I was the biggest squirrel in the world. Uh, <laughs> I'd race my own headlights. Right. You know, <laughs> you don't win, but that don't mean you don't, you're not going to try. Sure. So I was always into speed, went to Lions, uh, raced the Falcon there, then finally gave up the Falcon, and I was working at Aero Volkswagen, and I picked up a 68 GTX from one of the people that worked there. Mm -hmm. So I ran that for a while and got rid of it when our firstborn came. Then after a while, we had a little bit more, and I got a 69 Roadrunner. And then I bought my wife a uh, 69 Fastback Formula S 383 Barracuda 4-speed. Oh, wow. And that was her car for a long time. That's a serious car. So, yeah. I, I was a Mopar guy. So yeah. uh, anything I could do, and I, I just kept going. But uh, eventually, uh, two you know, kids and circumstances and you get rid of all of that and you wind up with a six cylinder 56 chevy four door so <laughs> right and then you know and, and and you're you're hot into performance stuff right and you figure you got a you got a wife kids and all this stuff and so how do you how do you keep your finger in the racing world and then stay employed doing what you're doing what what makes you which direction do you start going after this well um i went through a number of independents and one of them just happened to be a place called the Mouse House, and that was Howard Muse that owned it. And uh, Howard, it was a little shop over at Lakewood and Alondra in Bellflower, uh, real close to, uh, uh, well, we lived in Lakewood at the time, so it, everything was relatively close. Right. And uh, when I went to work there, I had decided that I had a bug, got a 63 ragtop, and I wanted to build a motor. So I got myself a 74 crank and some 92s, and I read that book, How to Hot Rod a Volkswagen. Yeah. And I'm looking in that, and... It's showing me what to do on the cylinder heads to make them better. So I did all of that. And then when I went to work, went to work for Howard, he had the mousetrap, which was the only licensed blown fuel Volkswagen that there was, I think, ever. Now explain that to me, licensed blown fuel. What do you mean by that? Like it was it was it was had a blower on it and it was injected? It was, it had a blower on it, and it was using nitromethane. Oh, wow. Yeah, this is the same stuff the funny cars and, and the top fuelers use. So, uh, nitromethane <clears throat> is oxygen-bearing. It's extreme. It's basically nitroglycerin with oxygen added to it. So, uh, it was pretty violent. Uh, it was even written up in Hot Rod Magazine. It was called The Mouse Lord. So when I went in there, I showed him what I did. And 
after he was able to stop laughing, um, he sat me down and he taught me what to do. Really? And the first real set of heads I ever did was at the mouse house. It took me four months. It was stock valve. And, you know, right now, looking back at what I've done, they were really amateurish. Yeah. But it worked. Um, at the time, Rimco was making 2180s with their big valve heads and dual Webers, and they were making 110 horsepower. I had this 74 by 92 motor with stock valves and a two-barrel Zenith. Really? Now, the Zenith only has a 24-millimeter throttle plate. Mm -hmm. So we're talking really small, and it's one carburetor in the middle. Right. I made, a, yeah, I made 108. Did you really? Oh, yeah. So I felt I did pretty good for what it was. Yeah, that's huge. And uh, when I was still working with Howard, a couple of people, they got a ride in my car, and they asked me if I would do work for them. So I'd go in the garage and start porting, and I started learning from there. And I tried every set I did, I tried to make it better than the one before. Now, well, now what, was your, what was your understanding of the philosophy of head porting? There was none. So with VWs, it was just kind of figured out as you go. It, that's that's it. Uh, Howard gave me the basics and got me going in the right direction. Mm -hmm. If you want to progress, you actually, at that point and at that time, there wasn't a lot out there. There weren't any flow benches. Uh, there wasn't anybody. The number one guy out there was Pumio. Uh, he was the man. Yeah. The biggest or the fastest cars out there were the modified compacts. The 88 by 69 motors, mm -hmm. those guys were incredible. A small motor, easy to feed, now that I know. Uh, that Back then, you had the small motor. And you had the big motor, the 2180s. They couldn't get out of their own way. They'd, they'd basically top out about 5,500, and they're dead in the water. So everybody thought the big motors don't work. We just didn't understand anything back then. You couldn't get enough air in there, enough. You couldn't pump enough through, that, through the motor because of restriction on the head? Right, because we're still building heads for small motors. Because... Right. Your small motors run fast. And now but, you, you guys at this time are using dual port heads. Yeah, yeah, we're using dual port. Mm -hmm. Stock valves? Well, we use stock valves, and we also put bigger valves in it. The biggest I used for a while was a 42 by 37. So uh, it was typical, you know, starting out, learning as you go. And uh, I went through the... Uh, trash can phase you know where you got a trash can and you put a valve seat on it yeah 
<laughs> and and uh, then I, I found out that you don't need that big of a hole. Uh, the whole object... Yeah, and that and that's kind of a thing that people, you know, when you when you're looking at, as as the consumer myself, I look at the magazine and let's say I'm building a I'm building a I'm building a motor from the catalog, right? And I go, well, I'm gonna have to get the might as well get the forty four thirty seven five valves because they're gonna do me the most. And there's different philosophies in regards to valve sizes and the difference between the intake and the exhaust valves. And not always bigger is better, depending on what you're what you're trying to do. Is that right? Absolutely. Uh, the biggest problem is, even still today, mm-hmm. a lot of the Volkswagen people are still stuck in the seventies. Uh, they're doing the same thing that they did in nineteen seventy. In and regards to come, just just big valves, just get the biggest valve possible and shove everything you can in it. Well, we've progressed so far. When I was in high school, we'd go out to Lions Drag Strip and we'd watch the factory bat, you know, uh, cars. And one of the old timers was Dick Landy. Mm-hmm. Now, he was a Mopar guy, so I followed him. And he was out there running low tens, maybe a high nine. Now, we're talking back in the 60s. Sure. 10 seconds. 11 seconds was fast. If you had a 12-second streetcar, you know, you were the king. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, now the fastback that I had, uh, you know, that Andy drove, Mm -hmm. it ran 969. So we ran faster than Dick Landy did back with a factory Dodge, and we had a four-cylinder. What? That's crazy. So, yeah. The technology that has progressed, it it changes almost weekly. So you have to keep up. Uh, the thing is, the Volkswagen doesn't know it's a Volkswagen. It's just an internal combustion engine. Sure. It doesn't know it's, it could think it's a Chevy. It could think it's a Harley Davidson. Pretty much everything works about the same. If you can do a Chevy, you can do a Volkswagen. If you can do a Volkswagen, you can do a Ford. You know, there isn't much difference. Uh, the only thing you have to watch out for with the domestic cars is the water. Right. We get away with a lot because all we got to do is put a little bit of weld on there and, and it's done. Yeah. We vent to the atmosphere, but not to the uh, uh, water jacket. Yeah, yeah. And so with... With building motors in the early in the early days, you, re, you referenced in the seventies, like what they were doing technology. So, what were you doing with the little motors that was beating the guys with the big motors? I mean, was it was it that everything was like incrementally moved up little by little, and then that that, that enabled the motor to to you know because like a stock Volkswagen, one of the best motors I've ever had. The reason why I'm asking this question, I had a nineteen oh four, which was a 74, 90.5. 40, 35, five heads, 40, 40 millimeter carbs on there. And the thing ran fantastic, you know, and I spent so much time just, you know, I, I was with uh, a guy out here, Dino Bacalas, and he was showing me how to port the heads and do all this stuff. And I mean, I had a week and a half in my heads porting them, you know what I mean? And, and just doing all these things to match everything just right. And that motor, you could start that thing just by turning the key and it would idle. I mean, it was just everything was done to where it was 
really, really reliable. I think I was, and I was running low compression at the time, like seven and a half to one, you know, just trying to build, you know, I was jumping back between books and stuff, but it, and I always felt that motor ran really good because everything was just a bump bigger than stock. It was like stock, but bigger. And I, and I, my personal opinion was like, because it kind of stayed within the same parameters as far as percentages of bore stroke valve, all that stuff that that's why it ran really good. I don't know. I could be wrong, but what's your take on that? Well, uh, the biggest problem is people there. It's like when you go to a restaurant and they give you like two plates of food mm -hmm. and you try and eat it all. You know, your eyes are bigger than your stomach. Right. Well, most people are, the way I explain it is everybody wants to run 10 seconds in the quarter. They want to make 300 horsepower. They want it to last 100,000 miles, and they wanted to do it for 500 bucks. Right. Ain't happening. So the, the thing to do is when someone came into the shop and they wanted a pair of heads, the first thing I asked them was, how are you going to drive it? Is it going to be a daily driver? Is this a Saturday night special? Uh, you're going to go drag racing with it? And if you're going to go drag racing, do you want to win? So then what size of motor do you want to build? And what's your budget? So once you have those parameters, you can design something that the individual will be happy with. You don't overbuild them. Mm -hmm. You don't underbuild them. You try to get them more than he expects or more than they expect. And you get that by literally trying every single combination known to man. And and is that maybe one of the drawbacks? We've talked before on the podcast with a couple other engine builders that sometimes the drawback is there's so many different combinations to build. You know, you, you, you with a 350 Chevy, you got the 350, the 383, and then you know, the, what is it, 396 small block, you know what I mean, like, or the 400 small block, I mean, like, there's a couple different things that you can do, but it's pretty much for the most part, there's there's a couple different tricks you can do, or a couple different displacements, but with the Volkswagen, I mean, you've got an engine chart that's got 35 different engine displacement combinations on it, you know, so, I mean, could that be one of the issues that there's so many people, and everybody's got a different philosophy between bore and stroke, and and head head style and valves and cam and lift and duration and overlap. I mean, there's so many different things that it's, I think it's hard to get any kind of consistency out of it, you know, as far as when you see so many different engines on the street, you have two 1776s, they run completely different. Well, again, you, you just answered your own question. There's so many different combinations. And if the person or the individual puts the wrong pieces together. Mm -hmm. You don't put a post-stock, you know, Chevy head on a 327. Right. It's not going to work. But unfortunately, that's what a lot of people did. And the go-to cam since the 70s was the FK89. <laughs> that was the now, biggest, the biggest one. Yeah, when, when somebody puts an FK-89 in their car, I tell them, yeah, you're going out first round. Really? So the cam technology 
and the knowledge that has come about in developing the head. The head is the absolute limiting factor of air and fuel into the motor. You can take your crank, you can take your rods, you can take your pistons, cylinders, carburetors, throw them all in the trash. Because no matter what size it is, whatever that head allows into the engine mm -hmm. is what you're going to make. You can predict horsepower by the CFM that the heads put out. Now, so in your opinion, in regards to valve sizing, which you, which we discussed for a little bit, but didn't really get into detail, there's a lot of misnomers that the bigger, the bigger, the better. What do you find for an all-around motor? You want to take it to the track once or twice a year just to have fun, test and tune or whatever, but you want something that's got respectable power on the street and you can drive it and not worry about it. What's going to be your ideal ideal combination head and cams in your opinion? Well, you see, you're asking a question that doesn't have an answer. Uh, it depends on, you know, one, how you're going to drive it. Mm -hmm. Are you running a close ratio box? Or are you running, uh, is it long-legged, uh, freeway flyer? Uh, are you going to drive it every day? You want to drive this from Las Vegas down to uh, Garden Grove, you know, yeah. for the big uh, shindig down there, right. and then drive it back. There's a number of factors involved. Uh, if you want to go out on the track occasionally, you can do that with a Hyundai. Sure. It, it, it doesn't matter. Uh, you're going to be an ET bracket, and then you find out what it runs, and you run it. Now, if you want to go out and heads up, like in Super Street, Pro Stock, any of those, uh, even Pro Turbo, there's a lot of misconceptions about Pro Turbo also. But uh, you try to gear the head. If you want to make 200 horsepower, mm -hmm. which almost everybody wants to do now, That's the, the head has to flow a certain amount. And essentially, your CFM is or your horsepower is your cfm times 0.25 times the number of cylinders so if you've got 200 cfm and you're a quarter of a horsepower and you got four cylinders you're capable of making 200 horsepower so that's kind of the right. number is is 200 cfm and what displacement motor any motor Really? The cylinder head determines the power. The size of the motor determines where the power is achieved. So the same head will make the same power on a 2275 as it does on a 1776. Really? That's the only thing is, yeah. the 1776 is going to have to go to like 14,000 RPM <laughs> in order to get there. It won't make it. You're going to have so to move that CFM. Yeah. So what you have to do is you have to use a bigger motor, which will lower where the horsepower is developed. But it will not make any more horsepower. The cylinder head determines the horsepower of the motor. And that is one big thing. There's any number. I just 
did a set of heads, mm -hmm. and I have a computer program, and I run, after I get the flow figures on the head, I run the entire motor, the way the customer wants to build it, cam, everything. And I run that motor, and then I start changing the cam. And the last one I did, the gentleman, Jeff Sheen, who's also working with me right now, I'm teaching him how to do cylinder heads. Mm -hmm. But uh, uh, Jeff sat down, and first thing out was FK89, so I plugged that in. It made maximum torque at 55 and maximum horsepower at, uh, no, yeah, 5,075. So then I went to an FK87, torque and horsepower, same spot. Went to a K8, horsepower, torque, same spot. Went to a 110, horsepower and torque, same spot. Really? So the difference was the torque numbers were, I mean, absolutely incredible with a smaller cam. So torque improved. Uh, horsepower, they, they weren't the same horsepower and torque, but they were developed in exactly the same spot. Hmm. So if you want torque, and torque moves the car, not horsepower. Right. So then you have to design your motor, whatever size it is, to develop that torque range in a power band that you can drive in. Right. So you have too big of a cam, the power band is really, really high up, you need real close ratio gears. Well, yeah, the 87s and 89s, I think the power band doesn't come on to like 3,500 RPM versus like a, uh, you know, a 110, that power band's coming on at 1,500 RPM. You know, yeah, well, uh, the FK89 actually gets maximum torque in excess of 6,000. <laughs> yeah, that's so, not, that's not for longevity driving. No, no, it's not. So, if you want to drive it around, you can drive around with a 78 by 94 motor, which I feel is an excellent size motor. Mm -hmm. You can use a stock length rod, gives you almost a perfect connecting rod ratio. Uh, a 327 Chevy, which is probably one of the best engines that there ever was. It has a 175 connecting rod ratio. Yeah. The 78 with a stock rod has a 175 connecting rod ratio. Now, when you and say one seven five connecting rod ratio, break that down for some of our listeners that don't understand that. That's the ratio of yeah. You, you take your rod length mm -hmm. and divide it by the stroke. Okay. Because your rod's longer than the stroke is, and uh, that will give you a connecting rod ratio. Uh, also, the connecting rod ratio has a direct relation to the cylinder head and the port size and shape. Really? Yeah, the, uh, you see, the, uh, when the, a very important part of the engine is going from top dead center mm -hmm. to half stroke, because 
that movement from top dead center to half stroke puts the draw on the intake port, the manifold, and the carburetor. So it creates a negative pressure. So it creates, uh, it creates a vacuum. There is no vacuum. It's nope. a negative pressure. The only vacuum is in outer space. Oh, really? So, <laughs> yeah. Uh -huh. There is no vacuum inside a motor. It's a negative pressure. So what's happened is uh, you've seen those toys where you pull the lever or the, the, the thing, and all of a sudden it makes a sound. Yes. You know, a whistle. Well, the same thing. What happens is you've got this piston that's sealed in the cylinder, and as that piston rotates very quickly mm -hmm. down that cylinder, it creates a suction. Not a vacuum, but a suction. Correct, yes. Or a negative pressure. A suction. And you have atmospheric pressure on top. So that's pushing down while the piston is actually pulling it. So you're getting even more charge into the motor. And the bigger the port, the slower the charge. So you can take a short rod or a shorter rod mm -hmm. and... You can speed the air-fuel mixture down through the port, the manifold, and into the combustion chamber by increasing the speed of the top dead center to half stroke. Now, if you have, if you have a port that's a little bit smaller or a higher velocity, then you can use a little bit longer rod, which gives you more dwell time at top dead center. So now are you and that well, or, so are you saying a smaller port on that type of stroke would be more effective than a larger port? Well, the the whole thing is how the head works. Uh -huh. If you've got a 44 valve and a welded head on a 78 by 94 motor and you want it to be streetable, then I would put a little bit shorter rod in it. Because what it does is it's going to fool that port into thinking that it's smaller than it is. It'll speed it up and you'll get more velocity down through the uh, uh, intake manifold and in, in through the uh, port and to the combustion chamber. So in your opinion, shorter rods, because the, the theory that I was always, because everything, of course, I'm not an engine builder, but the theories that we, we throw them back and forth, us non-engine builder guys is that a short rod gives you more torque a taller a, a longer rod is more for higher rpm or top end on the engine but i guess from what you're saying with that with with the rod the rod length is specific to the type of performance that you want that is correct and if if you take a very large port uh-huh when you put a, a very long rod in it, then what happens is it's moving slower down to half stroke. And seeing as how it's moving slower, you're not getting as strong of a draw. So you're actually gonna you're actually gonna you're gonna, you're gonna slow the motor down. You're not you're not pulling in as much as you can with every stroke. That's cor that's correct. So uh, everything literally depends on the head that's why 
when you go looking for a cylinder head, mm -hmm. it's very difficult because flow numbers are an indication of where you want to be or what it is capable of. But it's up to the engine builder to understand that everything that he puts in that motor, mm -hmm. the crank, the rods, the cam, the header, everything is designed specifically and only to optimize that one piece of equipment, which is the cylinder head. And in the world of cylinder heads, there's been a million different attempts to make. I mean, I even remember at one time there was a, this funky head that came out like in the early 80s that was like a, was it a four, four valve per cylinder head? I mean, it was super, super funky. Lots of different, lots of different combinations. I've seen people try different aspects of like experimental heads that maybe never took off. And well, yeah, experimental heads are great, but, you know, if it hasn't been done before, uh -huh. there's a real good chance that it's really not going to work unless you spend $1,500 and all the time in order to make it work. And then, is it going to really be any better than what you already have? If you take what you already have and maximize it. And like the Fumio heads that we talked about earlier, those those are just straight racing heads. Those were great racing heads for a small motor. But once you got and to larger displacement, they weren't very functional. They, while they still worked well, they weren't able to feed the motor at the RPM. See, there's two things. Velocity is great. Uh, for throttle response and drivability. Mm -hmm. But you also, depending upon the RPM, back in the 70s, the 2180s, they'd run about, oh, 5,500 RPM. They might hit six if you had a good pair of heads. Mm -hmm. But after that, they were, they were done. For the little 1700, it was turning like nine, ten thousand 10,000 RPM. Really? Yeah. Now, today... You have a 2,500cc motor making power in excess of 8,000. And that's all due to head design. Head design, cam design, header design. It, you have to work with the cylinder head to extract everything that it is capable of giving you. So... Uh, we have come so far. Right now, uh, you can, I'm pretty sure with a four inch motor, you could probably get 300 horsepower aspirated on pump gas. Really? And drive it around. Yeah. Uh, we have the technology. You do a 86 101, that's 177 cubic inches which is half of a 350 Chevy. So now you got half a 350 Chevy. Mm -hmm. You've got cylinder heads that flow 360 at 28 inches at 700 lift through the manifold. You can theoretically on pump gas, 
if we go back to the 0.25, you got 360 CFM. So if you had this maxed out, you could make 360 horsepower. So you pump gas it, and you should be able to make right around 300. Wow. That's crazy. And and that's, I mean, obviously, 86, 86 by 101. You're not, can you do that in a stock case? Oh, yeah. They're putting 86. Uh, I, a long time ago, I uh, took an engine case and machined the sides down, and I made one-inch billet plates to go on the sides. And then I threw bolted the stock case and bored the one-inch plate for a, uh, a four-inch piston. Really? So you were able to put 101s on cases uh, 25 years ago. Jeez. Yeah, I even did a couple of those for uh, uh, Bob Giese. And he ran them in the Baja 1000 and went a 1,000 miles, not with a 101. Uh, he did it with a 94. But what he wanted was to girdle the case. And with the two billet plates on the outside, it literally clamped the case together. So all it had to do was hold the crank in the cam and give it oil pressure. There was no stress from the cylinders on the case half. Sure. Wow, that's that, that that's pretty incredible that they were doing that. You know, twenty five years ago. Well, yeah, there, there's a lot of things. Like I can say crazy things, uh, stuff that was done. Uh, we got into anti reversion with a number of people and found out some incredible things. Some of it I still don't believe, but uh, I saw it work. What's anti reversion? Well, uh, you know what standoff is, right? Standoff. You know, when, yeah, uh, when you rev the motor and you see this mist coming out the top of the carburetor, mm -hmm. that's called standoff. Okay. And what's happening is it's a reversion of the intake and exhaust being open at the same time, and it's literally blowing back up through the intake manifold all the way through the carburetor, and the mist is fuel, air-fuel mixture that's a mist sitting on top of uh, or above the uh, velocity stack. Now, is, is that because the overlap is too close or you're starting to float valves? Well, if everything isn't set up correctly, uh, in order to get things to work, you have to have a certain amount of overlap. And I'll let the cam grinders get into that. Sure. Uh, I, I can't tell you specifically you know what's good or bad but uh uh if a cam grinder who's been in the business for a while they know mm -hmm. they have that technology but uh there's reversion on the intake and there's reversion on the exhaust now what kind of stuff so, did you guys do with the reversion well uh we did sort of like a plenum in the runner and it would come off of the cylinder head, and it would go into a bowl and then come back, and then the carburetor would sit on top of that. Hmm. And what that did was uh, the reversion comes back to the point of first expansion. 
And that bowl was the point of first expansion. Now, this was one bowl for each side. Uh, of a plenum, the way it works is the runner comes up to the plenum, that's your point of first expansion, and it stops relatively right there. So that is your runner length on a plenum manifold. On a, a, a isolated runner, uh, the port literally goes to the top of the carburetor. Right. No, no, no. With, without a plenum, without a plenum between the carburetor and the the intake manifold on the head, you're saying mm -hmm. it comes up to the top. So by putting a plenum below the carburetor, it keeps that reversion underneath the carburetor instead of coming back up over the top. It can't. Not always. But in this one particular instance, he made horsepower that was impossible to make with the components that he had. Really? And uh, it was quite staggering. There is also... Uh, well, who, who was this? <laughs> uh, he, he, he died. So uh, he's not with us anymore. Yeah. But he was extremely sharp, worked with him for about two and a half years on and off. Uh, and uh, it's like exhausts. Uh, the reversion on the exhaust sometimes is so simple to take care of that uh, it doesn't make sense. Right. So uh, you always want a bigger pipe than the hole in the head on the exhaust. See, the exhaust goes out the middle of the pipe. The reversion comes back down the side of the pipe. And they had uh, AR cones that people built into the header mm -hmm. uh, to stop it and trap it. But if it comes down the side and hits a flat wall, like the end of the cylinder head, it will then push to the center, which gets picked up by the exhaust going out, and it takes it back out. So you don't get as much reversion going back in the exhaust. And the whole key with getting rid of the reversion is more fuel and air in and out with less obstruction. You see, as that reversion comes back, mm -hmm. the exhaust and the intake are open at the same time. It's called overlap. And that overlap can translate into standoff. So it can go from the exhaust all the way up to the carburetor if you have things not set up correctly. Right. So um, it, it, there's, there's a lot to it, and you never stop learning. Uh, you find out, you know, who's good. The thing that you can buy over the counter is a generic, and you want something that will make good horsepower, and you got a big motor, mm -hmm. it'll work pretty well. I mean, now that you know, the technology they have, you can make a fairly decent engine based on what what's available off the shelf for the most part. I mean, you're not going to be setting records because I think with the tolerance of, a, of available quality parts, unless you're buying the top end, most expensive drag racing components, there's a little too much sloppy tolerance down 
on the average off-the-shelf stuff available for the VW engine builder. Would you say so? Yeah. Uh, you don't have to go out and buy a uh, Sunny Leonard crank, you know. Mm -hmm. But uh, you can get by with a lot of stuff out there that's over-the-counter and make a good, reliable motor. And the reliability part is really in your right foot. It's how you drive you it, build, you're saying. Yeah. You can build any size motor. And if you drive it nicely, it'll last you a long time. If you get out there and pretend you're, you know, the final, your last race, and you're a heads up. Right. Every time you leave a stoplight, you know, it's not going to last very long. Now, we wanted to get into when you started getting into doing heads on your own you work with the you work with the mouse house for how long mm -hmm. before you become performance technologies or is there a step between the two of that oh there were many steps between that i left uh howard and i was doing heads in the garage uh also building engines and working at the dealer so uh, uh i went uh different independence around and finally wound up in Costa Mesa at a place called Datsa Toyota. And uh, a gentleman that worked at Datsa before me was Stuart Thomas. Mm -hmm. And he had uh, head flow performance. So I would take heads over to Stuart, and he'd weld up the plug holes and put the seats in. And I'd port them, bring them back to him. And he'd weld up the holes that I made. And I take it back. So he kind of had an idea of what I was doing. And so finally, when I got fed up with working on cars, I, uh, I went over here and I took a set of heads in and told him that I quit. He says, well, when do you want to start? So I went to work at Headflow. I was there for five years. I left there and opened up Performance Technology. Now there was uh, now you had uh, manufactured a set of heads at one time, right? Oh yeah, uh, I was involved at Headflow with JC. Uh, we're not talking Jack Sicchetti JC. I'm talking the letter J and the letter C. Uh -huh. They made a cylinder head that was made in Japan, and uh, I believe it was Jack Poet uh, was the J. And the C was for Chai, which was his Chinese or Japanese uh, partner. And they made the cylinder head. And uh, Stuart and I at Headflow, when it came in, we developed the head. And uh, most of the time, it was me working after work uh, trying to figure it out. Well... That JC went belly up. And the last of the cylinder heads were soft. So I talked to a friend of mine, uh, Mr. Rand Foster, who was also my partner in the engine pole. Mm -hmm. And uh, we came up with our version of the head, which was the uh, SHO. And it was, and still is, a very good cylinder head. But uh, what we did when we made it is we overdeveloped the exhaust. So we could go in with a smaller exhaust valve 
and a bigger intake valve than other people were using and a smaller exhaust valve and still get the same exhaust to intake ratio. Now, what what was the big difference on that head? Was it the was it the valve the the valve spacing? Was it? I mean, what was the biggest jump from that from from that to a stock head? Well, uh, the stock head is weak. As far as uh, the casting quality, you're saying? Well, yeah, it's uh, it's kind of flimsy. Uh, it's prone to uh, distortion under real heavy circumstances, RPM, mm -hmm. detonation, excess heat, and it can fail because the material isn't that good. We made the head out of 356. Uh, it was machined here. It was cast here, machined here, uh, developed here, and everything was within a 25-mile radius. Oh, really? So we were able to uh, uh, control the quality. Uh, we moved the exhaust over, left the intake where it was, was, moved the exhaust over, gave us a little bit more material there. Uh, we put the solid uh, intake so that you could port it re relatively large. Uh, we had a decent-sized chamber uh, to begin with as cast. It had come out with approximately... Uh, right around 58, 59 cc's. So you could make it for a big motor or you could cut it for a small motor. And we overdeveloped the exhaust so that it you'd be able to put like a 46 millimeter intake with a 36 millimeter exhaust. Mm -hmm. And you'd still have the same exhaust intake ratio as you did with a 42-37. Now... So now explain that to most people that don't understand what you what you mean by that by having the same ratio. Well, you take the exhaust, mm -hmm. uh, you t you take the exhaust and you divide it by the intake, and that gives you a ratio. Right. What what you're trying to achieve is something in the anywhere from one seventy to 180% uh, intake to exhaust ratio. Uh, anything over 60% doesn't do you any good. The problem is you have to run it in a pipe, and that pipe has bins on it. Mm -hmm. And every time that exhaust goes around a bin, it loses some velocity and some temperature. So uh, you have to kind of give it a little bit more so that you can get that absolute minimum of 60%. Right. So uh, a 75% exhaust intake ratio, uh, if we put a 37.5 and a 44 in it, we could flow more out of the exhaust than we did the intake. Now, and and is, that, is that that's a good thing? No, that is a bad thing. Because you lose. There's always the thing about back pressure. Is back pressure well, a thing? Is it is it needed? Is there a requirement for back pressure? Or do you get cavitating inside there because there's just so much, it's pushing so much out? Well, the, the thing with the uh, uh, ratio is that if it is too high, a lot of times, and this has been going on for a long time, mm -hmm. but a guy would get a, 
a 42, 37 set of heads. He'd put them on his motor and his engine ran cooler. And they were making more power and it was running cooler than it did stock. On 42, 37s. Yeah. And, you know, when we're talking about a decent set of heads. Mm -hmm. And the reason was the exhaust intake ratio was pushing between 80 and 90 percent. So what happens is, yes, you have to have a certain amount of, of back pressure. Uh, the If it's the same, then the combustion chamber, what happens is it over scavenges the combustion chamber. And so now it's sucking unburned air and fuel out the exhaust. And just like you take alcohol, put it on your hand and blow on it, the same thing happens, that oxidation happens when the fuel and air are going out the exhaust. It cools the exhaust down. Really? So if the exhaust is cooled down, it's an air-cooled motor. You know, the hottest part is the exhaust in the combustion chamber. So you cool those down, and all of a sudden the motor's running cooler. So uh, you have to have heat. It's a heat pump motor. So if you don't have heat, you're not making power. So you can, a, you can run it too cool on a race application? Oh, absolutely. It's like the guys with, uh, that used to put alcohol in their car, and they'd take the fan housing off. Now, they'd leave the generator on, but they'd take the fan off, fan housing, and they'd just run around in the desert on their dune buggies, and it was running really cool. That's because the alcohol, there's a difference between an alcohol head and a gasoline head. And uh, you have to be able to make heat. Uh, when you look at a, like a VW Pro Stock motor, if you look in the exhaust and the valve guide sticking out into the exhaust is still there, intact, mm -hmm. you're not making power. You can peel that off just like it was a turbo and you'll be spitting it out the exhaust if you're making power and you have the heat. Really? You can make it too cold and then you lose the power. You can make it too hot and you'll burn it to the ground. So uh, it's a fine line in there, but uh, yeah, uh, getting the percentages correct. And even if after you do the head, you get it wrong, you can correct it with a camshaft. Hmm. So split lift, split duration camshafts, uh, it's pretty much the norm now. Now, when we spoke earlier on the, on the phone when I called yesterday, I, I alluded to the fact that <laughs> in my buses I really like and I've been super happy with Type 4 motors that I've had in my cars. And these are I'm sorry. aftermarket Type 4 motors. Now, knowing that you're a head guy, and I've had this conversation with, with my buddy Adam, about type fours and he says you know that the head just doesn't clamp down if you're running too much compression starts to leak but with volkswagen you know I've, I've often wondered volkswagen designed the type four as a replacement for the type one correct it was like the evolution of the type one was the type four you know ford made the edsel <laughs> volkswagen made the type four well 
No, I know, but I mean, as far as, because we talked earlier, and where you really feel the power is seat of the pants. And like they say, in in most forms of performance, there's no replacement for displacement, right? Uh, yeah, there is. <laughs> <laughs> Remember what we just talked about? You right. have to be able to feed the motor. You've got a very large motor right. that you can't feed. So the... You take a Type 4, one, there's three problems with the Type 4. Uh-huh. One is the cylinder head. They're either new or they're cracked. Mm-hmm. Uh, the design of it, uh, the short side of the exhaust, there's no material underneath it. So it can't dissipate the heat from the valve seat into the cylinder head. So it hyperheats. And eventually, it gives up, and it makes a uh, heat riser, a heat, uh, a stress riser, a crack. So uh, the next thing is the camshaft, because the camshaft uses a flat tappet. It's not a concaved or convexed or anything. It's a flat tappet, and it wears a diamond in the center of the cam lobe after a lot of use. And the third is the case and the oil strainer because you have to torque that oil strainer onto nine foot pounds. Any more than that and the oil pickup is uh, has an eyelet with a bolt going through the outside of the case to attach that to the center cam journal. And if you over tighten that, you break the center cam journal out of the case. Oh, wow. And you have a very large motor. Uh, you could take a 4838, which is a standard type four oversized combination, mm-hmm. pour them out, do them nice, and I can take a 4035 and kick your butt. Really? Yeah. So, uh, you, if you're after torque, you can build the same torque and sometimes even more for a whole lot less than you put in a type four because a type four costs anywhere from two to three times more than any of the type one stuff. Well, and my, and my philosophy with the type four, when I, the reason I started looking at type fours back in the day was you can build a 2.2 liter motor with 90% factory German parts, have a nice, I mean, we're not talking a drag race motor. We're talking about, I mean, what the, the motor that I have in my, uh, in my first bus is 18 years old. I've never had the heads off of it and I've driven it, you know, thousands and thousands of miles on road trips and all kinds of stuff. And it's, it, it had a, a new set of heads, but it's a 2270 and it's just been, you know, I'm pushing that big bus and, it's just been a, a real, a good motor to have, especially when you're pushing a big bus, you know. But, you know, what you're saying about the exhaust valves makes sense. And so the, is that the reason that they usually drop valve seats is because the way that head is designed, it just throws that heat right back into the head or right back. No, into the, it doesn't go out through the head. It just stays in the, in the valve, you're saying. No, no, that's not what I'm saying. Oh. <laughs> um Valve seats come out because one of two things. Either they were 
put in poorly. Mm-hmm. And a stock head from Volkswagen, they have approximately four thou press on the intake and five to six press on the exhaust, which is adequate. Uh, intake is a little on the weak side, and you'll find that most of the valve seats that come out are intakes. But uh, the problem with valve seats coming out is put in wrong or something released the press on the seat, and that would be a crack. Oh. When you, when you get a crack in the head, mm-hmm. see... The hole in the head is smaller than the valve seat. Uh, normally, aftermarket, we put anywhere from 8 to 10 thou press. And they stay in. There's no problem. Everybody's been doing that since forever. Right. Uh, the factory, now, if you take that and you get a crack between the seats, that's not very critical. Really? The crit, yeah, the critical part is the crack at the spark plug, because the crack at the spark plug goes all the way through the head to the outside. Yeah. I, so now you don't have a little bit uh, of material missing, but you still have the rest of the pocket to hold the seat in. You you have literally increased that entire hold. Uh, especially when it gets hot, because it releases the press. Crack gets bigger. Yeah, I know that, that, that makes total sense. So did, was there ever a time when you guys tried to chase down the Type 4 thing and realize it was just a dead-end street? Oh, I, I still do Type. Well, I don't. I, I don't do any heads anymore. The, the only thing I do now is uh, I had medical problems and uh, had to close the shop, so... Mm-hmm. I can't really work anymore, but uh, I piddle, and I'm able to do things now that I wasn't able to do before because I had a job. Right. And now I don't have a job, so I can go out there and do some things that I had always wanted to do but couldn't, and it doesn't matter if it gets done now or gets done in six months or a year, you know, it'll get done eventually in less than I'm not around to do it, so. Yeah, so uh, right now the things you're doing, you're not on a timeline for them. You'll do them at, at kind no. of leisure. No, I, and like I say, it's not something I do every day. Uh, you, you can't watch TV and play on the computer all day every day. Right. So I have to have something to occupy my mind. So uh, I work with people and I help them out. A lot of times, it's just trying to get their head straight. So uh, they come in and they're doing things that could be done a little different and get better performance out of it. Mm -hmm. And I just try to bring them along. Uh, That's why I'm showing Jeff Sheen uh, how to port heads. I'm not porting them. He is. Right. So, uh, but uh, he's coming along incredibly well. I've only had really two people that were monsters, and uh, that was Anthony Kika. He worked mm-hmm. for me for a while. And uh, Jeff is picking it up faster than almost anybody. 
And would you so, say uh, would you say with the with porting heads, there's kind of a there's kind of a, a, a science slash art to it. I mean, you've got to understand the science behind what you're doing to not take too much out of the head, but also to really understand how to how to make the most effective moves inside the inside the intake port to an exhaust port to to try to get get that head to flow right. Yeah, it's it's I I the only way I can explain it is it's a science, but. Uh, your whole objective is to get everything out of the cylinder head that it is capable of giving. And you have to pretty much understand uh, how the cam works. What's the most important part of the cam? That's intake closure. Mm -hmm. Because that's in direct relation to the uh, position of the crankshaft. So when the valve closes, uh, where is the crankshaft? Uh, where is the piston? Uh, how is it going to affect the port? Uh, getting into headers. Uh, you see all of these sidewinder headers. Um, I call them uh, hamster wheels. Yeah. Got that big whoop-de-doo on there. You know, kind of looks like a Hot Wheels thing, you know? Yeah, yeah. And every time exhaust changes direction it loses velocity and it loses heat and the more things you have it's like the ones at the flywheel the ports at the flywheel those come in relatively clean the ones at the crank pulley it's you know, Barnum and Bailey time. Uh, I don't understand how some of these things are made. I'm kind of old school. Uh, you know, if a good old merge works, put a merge on it. Right. Well, the old S&S work for a streetcar. You know, they'll, they'll still work for a streetcar if that's what you want. Yeah, and I, think, and I think some of that is driven by you know, the populace of people that want an exhaust that tucks up and you're, you've now taken a motor and you tripled the displacement of it. And meanwhile, or you doubled the displacement. Meanwhile, you're wanting it to sit two inches off the ground and drive on the street without scraping the exhaust. So sometimes I think the, the market kind of pushes things in that direction. But you're saying from a performance standpoint, I mean, if we're talking about that, some of those old drag cars that just had a J-tube coming straight up would flow the best then, huh? For a race well, application? Uh, well, remember, the J-tube was on the front of the motor where the flywheel is. So uh, it was the one on the back where the pulley is. That was the one that always had to do the conniption fits. So, yeah. what you know, you want as close to an equal length as you can, but you want a short pipe so that it doesn't have to bend on top of itself or turn into a paper clip. You know, the last thing you want to do is have it turn into a paperclip. And if you want a car, you've just spent $7,000 on parts. And you put that header on and you lose 40 horsepower. Wow. Was it worth spending all that money? You, you could have spent less money, got the same horsepower with less money do you think do you think the 
the 40 horsepower? I mean, is, is 40 horsepower a real number that it could cost you? Oh, no. Uh, we, we did one test. Uh, it was one of those. Um, we got it for the, well, actually, the customer got it, and we put it on for him, built the motor. It went out dyno, came back. We were having a hell of a time tuning the motor. So uh, it was going down the side and upside up in the wheel well. Mm -hmm. uh, we pulled it off, put on an S&S &S mm -hmm. with a single QP. Thing woke up, tuned perfectly, and we were actually able to dyno it. We couldn't even dyno it before because we couldn't tune it. So that makes it makes that much of a difference. Now, what what about the school of thought about like two into one, two into one type thing? Does that mean? You, you know, I'm I go back to old school and mm -hmm. Emerge works really good. Some of the fastest cars that ever have been are running merged. Uh, Andy ran merged. He did more work actually than. There's only one other person that matches him, and I believe that would be uh, Sean Gears. Yeah. But Andrew Costello was years ahead of everybody. Now you um, were you were you helped those guys quite a bit. Uh, you were kind of with them in that whole racing thing with uh, with Andy Costello. And some of our younger listeners might not know who Andy Costello was and what you guys did at the time, but. You guys made a fairly big impact in the drag racing scene, wasn't it? Well, yeah. Uh, back when uh, Super Street came out, and you had Super Street, and you had uh, Pro Stock. Well, Andy took his red car, and it was Andy and Gary Berg. They'd go out. They were all steel. Both cars, mm -hmm. all steel. And they were running 1030s in an all-steel car. Wow. So the two of them were, I mean, it, it, it was epic, uh, the, the battles that they had. And uh, he uh, took that motor out of his Super Street car, and he wanted to go Pro Stock. Well, everybody said, oh, you can't use a Super Street car, you know, a Super Street motor in a Pro Stock. And, uh, you know, I'm looking at him and I go, why? Horsepower is horsepower. Right. So he took it, stuck it in a pro stock, and won the championship. And uh, that was about the time I was building my car. And it got done right after he took the championship and uh, put him in the fastback. And uh, he campaigned that, and fortunately, the car destroyed itself at Speed World in uh, Phoenix area uh, due to bad track conditions. Hmm. But uh, he came out of it okay. Uh, but Andy was one of the people that, when he showed up, he was like at the time the John Force of Volkswagen. Right. Because you had to be 100% perfect every time, or he'd have you. He would, a lot of times he was two tenths down, and he'd still beat him. 
Really? Yeah. He was that good. He psyched the people out just by pulling up on the line. So uh, he won. Yeah, he won everything. He had records all over the place. He dominated uh, Super Street. He dominated uh, Pro Stock uh, until he fell ill the last time. And now with with Andy and Tommy, how did you run across these guys? How did how did that connection come together? Uh, well, they came in with a pair of heads, and I kind of went through them. And this was back in his red car before it was lettered or anything. And he was still driving it around. And they went out, and with a 44-37, they ran in the 10s. So wow. that was, it still is, really good. Naturally aspirated. Naturally aspirated. No turbo, no nothing. No. So uh, worked with him for a while. Then he decided he wanted a bigger motor. So uh, I got him into a set of the SHOs, and he'd been running those, all of the Super Street and uh, all of the Pro Stock. Uh, he ran them, you know, his entire racing. So uh, uh, he seemed to do really well, and we made really good power. Or I should say he did. Yeah. He was a genius. He was a genius. Yeah. Um, and uh, Tommy's right there with him. Uh, still, I'm real close with Tommy. Uh, uh, I make my own intake manifolds, and Tommy is the one I get to do all the machining. Uh, if you want something absolutely right on, he's the guy you go to. He does the best carburetors I have ever seen. As, far, as far as his detailing and all that type of stuff and going through them? Well, he spent more time on the flow bench working on the carburetors to max them out. And he came up with a couple of ideas that nobody else had ever thought of. Oh, really? And you talked to Dominic, and he mentioned that he tried some carburetors, and uh, in the heat and altitude, he got more horsepower. Those were Tommy's. Interesting. And uh, the flow bench that he uses is mine. And his outflowed 51-millimeter carburetors. The 48s did? The 48. Wow. That's pretty impressive. Oh, yeah. And it wasn't by a couple. Interesting. It was by a substantial amount. Nobody has put the time on the flow bench that he has. He's checked every Venturi. He's checked every velocity stack. He's checked every throttle shaft. Uh, he's come up with his own ideas and implemented them. And, and I could say he's a stage three anal when it comes to carburetors. Right. Now, did Tommy, did Tommy and Andy hang around at the shop quite a bit and help you guys out with a lot of stuff? Or did they... I mean, uh, no, I'm, I mean, you know, I had a shop at the time, so, right. uh, you know, I'm busy. Uh, but what Andy did was he'd come and he was one that understood that if you want to win every single time you go out, you have fresh cylinder heads. So 
he would go out to an event. And after the event, he'd pull the heads off. Now, we'd been around each other, and I'd known him for so long. He'd walk in the shop, walk into the back, pick up the spring compressor. He'd take his heads apart, and he'd check them. And if they needed a valve job or they needed to be surfaced or whatever, uh, I'd take over from there. But he'd uh, check his valve springs and set his installed heights. And he maintains his own stuff. Uh, very, very good. And Tom was right there with him all the time. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it was the Costello brothers. No, that's no. that's awesome. I mean, and, and you're saying he had one set of heads in that car the whole time? Uh, pretty much. In fact, I've got them sitting on my floor right now. <laughs> one set of SHOs, was it? Uh, no, they're, they're his. Uh, Tommy pulled them off, and uh, he wanted me to check them and, you know, make sure everything was okay. So uh, I told him I'd do it. Of course, it's been about a year, but... Uh, uh, he's not ready to put the motor back together. Now, in that in, in, in that ten second car that they were running, that natural aspirated car, what was the cam head combination they were running on that? Well, you know, I can't tell you that. Oh, <laughs> so so <laughs> um, what I'm saying is, is there's actual things that still people can do if they understand or look at a look at a theory a little different that'll squeak out a little more power than somebody else. Well, I can tell you that they were SHOs. Uh huh. They were, they were really, really large ports. He had 58-millimeter carburetors. Uh, this is all stuff that you can see from the outside. Right. Uh, the manifolds were mine. The heads were mine. Uh, the valves were very large. Uh, the cam, yes, it had a cam. <laughs> But with you, with with how important, how much emphasis you've put on camshafts, like it's a specifically designed cam that's, I mean, it's nothing off. I'm assuming it's not an off-the-shelf cam. No, it was a roller cam. I can tell you that. Yeah. Uh, he, he drove me nuts for probably seven months because he'd go out, and when he came back in, I checked the valve springs. All the valve springs were gone. I'd put a new set in. Uh, he'd go out, come back, and after three passes, he'd drop one-tenth every pass after the third one. He didn't tell me to put a roller in it. I was putting in flat tap at springs. Oh, and there's so, a difference. Now, why would there be a difference in the spring? Well, it's the cam profile. You see, a flat tap at uh, the, the, the lifter has to follow a graduated curve or ramp. Mm -hmm. When you have a roller, it's infinite. It's always in contact. So, therefore, you can have more lift and you can have a straighter cam profile which will give you more duration over the nose, a uh, faster acceleration rate on cam or valve opening. It takes a much heavier spring. 
Uh, you put that spring on a flat tappet, you'll flatten out the cam and you'll destroy the lifters, probably the lifter bores. So it's a uh, sharper ramp angle. It looks more like a point than a gradual, like... like. No, no. It it looks like an oval. Oh, really? And the nose is relatively flat. The sides are relatively straight or they're straighter. Mm -hmm. So the acceleration rate of the lifter is much faster. So because of that faster acceleration rate, you still have to keep the valves under control. Right. And in order to keep them under control, you have to put more spring pressure because of that uh, massive acceleration rate. To keep them from floating. Right. The uh, uh, valve springs are the most abused part in the motor. Uh, it's If you saw a Spintron on it, uh, you'd be afraid to start your engine. Yeah. <laughs> oh, it's and scary. And and with with that technology, has there been any improvements in valve spring technology? I mean, obviously in the it, it, I, w I don't know if it was probably in the late seventies, early eighties, they went to dual springs or Chevy springs, stuff like that. Like when when they start moving in that direction? Well, the uh, the Chevy spring option, uh, you know, we we helped bring that in over at Headflow, mm -hmm. and uh, what the problem was is you couldn't get a decent spring. It would hold up, so you had to go to a domestic spring, and unfortunately, the domestic springs we call them Chevys or Buicks, uh, and based on the size, and you needed that to control. But unfortunately, they were bigger in diameter. Now, the spring technology, we were doing really good. The K800 was a good spring, and then there was an earthquake in Japan and we were getting most of our spring steel from Japan and that factory got leveled. No more steel. So they had to start scrambling all the spring manufacturers and they had to go to Brazil, Argentina, South Africa, Israel uh, to get steel. So what we were getting back was not good quality anymore. Now, there are a number of domestic spring manufacturers. Uh, PSI is one. Uh, Manly has some exceptional springs. Mm -hmm. That's pretty much what I use now instead of like a K800. Mm -hmm. uh, I put an LS spring in it. It's smaller in diameter, so it's really close to what a VW is. Really? But it's up, yeah, it sets up exactly the same as a uh, K800, so you need an inch 800 installed. And they have three different uh, seat pressures. They have a 155, a 165, and a 170. All of those are compatible with a flat tappet cam. Now, do you do you think to run tens on an aspirated motor, do you need to run a roller cam? No, you can run tens on a flat tappet. What's the advantage? Is there advantage, disadvantage, roller versus non-roller? Absolutely. Like I said, you can run tens. But if you have a good enough case to handle the loads of the valve springs mm -hmm. and the, the brutal acceleration rates of the lifter, then you can get more power because you can run a completely different cam lobe. You can accelerate the cam uh, or the lifter faster. If the lifter is, is accelerated faster, the valve opens quicker. 
Now, the quicker the valve opens, the less pressure it has to overcome. So it's coming off when the piston is either going away, coming up, whatever, but there's pressure in the cylinder. So if it comes away slow, uh, what happens is it starts building more pressure. If it's coming away faster, you're accelerating either to it or away from it quicker so there's less pressure in the cylinder. Got so you it. pick up a little bit of an advantage. And all those things, so, I mean, it's every one of those little things that get you closer and closer to the faster time. Right. Uh, and the thing with a roller is you can run a lower duration camshaft with more lift. And uh, you can't do that with uh, a flat tappet. A flat tappet, you have to, uh, in order to get a certain amount of lift, you have to have a certain amount of duration because you right. have to, uh, you know, it it's has to progress to, up the, yeah. to the point where it will stay under control. Now, they came out at some point in the uh, early 2000s, I think it was, with the ceramic lifters. <laughs> yeah. What, what was the philosophy behind that and what went wrong with the ceramic lifters? Well, they're made of glass, you know. Uh, uh, everything works fine as long as you don't float the valves. If you float the valves, the harmonics, all of a sudden, it blows up. Really? And it turns to dust. I can't, I've got a set of heads, or I had a set of heads in the, in the shop. A gentleman came in, and uh, I did the heads for him, and when you do the heads, you got to know the motor. And he said, oh, yeah, I'm going to put these uh, ceramic lifters in. we got to do it. He said, oh, no, 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 I'm going to try them. Well, he put them in, and uh, he was out. And some canyon, you know, running through the gears because it handled really well. Mm -hmm. And the lifter blew the motor up. Oh, wow. Took, took the head out, took the piston out, took the case out. So uh, sometimes, you know, stick with the stuff that works. <laughs> stick with the uh, tried And the philosophy behind it was a light, lighter valve train. Yeah, but you see, the, the, the problem is uh, people aren't thinking in terms of an opposed motor. Mm -hmm. Back in the 70s, and I know this, there was a gentleman out there, I'm not going to tell you who, <laughs> but he was running a 69 by 88 motor. Well, he put 88s on one side and 92s on the other. Then he built another motor, and he put the 88s on the opposite side and 92s on the opposite side. So what he did is he'd change motors. He'd go out, and they want to pull the head off. He'd pull the head off with the 88. <laughs> now, this guy was turning 9,000 RPM. It's an opposed motor. Right. Things switch out. It's not gravity pulling. You don't have to you know, overcome gravity to push something up. So they're pushing out. So weight of a lifter is irrelevant. Weight of a push rod is irrelevant. It, well, I'll take that back. The higher the ratio of the rocker arm, 
mm-hmm. the less the weight of the push rod matters. Got it. Hey, aluminum push rods should never be used in any motor. Alum- uh, aluminum should- push rods, like the, you're talking about the OEM push rods. Yeah, uh, there's too much flex. Uh, go on YouTube, and it's called uh, Spintron. Bring that up and start going through the different uh, videos. Uh, what a Spintron is, is an engine block. It's bolted up to a huge electric motor. And they bolt a cylinder head to it. Mm-hmm. And then put a strobe light and turn the thing on. And they can actually slow the motion down to the point to where you can see the motion of the valve spring, the valve, the keepers, the retainer. It's a 7,000 RPM. And you can also see what a push rod does. And it's pretty, in, it, like I say, it's scary. Yeah. But... Uh, beehive springs, uh, they're a joke and they weren't invented recently. They went all the way back into the twenties. No good. Yeah. Uh, the idea is pretty good, but unfortunately it doesn't work and you can see it on the Spintron. Yeah. Interesting. No, that's neat. I mean, there's, 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 there's so much that, that goes into, performance engines but like you said the key component one of the the biggest key components is the cylinder heads on the engine and then from that cylinder head standpoint if everything is designed to work with the next piece that's where you're going to get maximum performance i mean is that where they really started seeing things in the 70s like guys that started to figure out the combinations that worked well the the 70s they had a combination and it worked really well and that was the 80 the small motor uh, those guys, uh, I, uh, a while back, I tried to start a class called the Super 1600. I remember that class. Yeah, let's, let's right. talk about that class. That, and the, what, was the reason, what was the reason behind starting that class? Well, uh, it was supposed to be um, an economic class mm-hmm. in that you didn't have to go to a chassis builder. Uh, you could prep the car in your garage because there were no chassis modifications allowed adjustable spring plates you can't raise a transmission uh you you can't narrow the front end i think we allowed it to be narrowed slightly so you didn't have to use a punch center center line mm-hmm. you know and you could actually get a wheel underneath a wheel well with, with a slightly uh narrowed uh front end but it was an 85 5 by 69 now that limits the cylinder head, because you can only get so much in an eighty-five-five bore. Right. It's only fifteen hundred and eighty-five cc's, so you don't need anything bigger than a forty-thirty-five. You can put a forty-two in it. We got a forty-six in. In an eighty-five-five bore. Wow. But uh, you don't need it because you don't have that much motor. There's not the velocity but, there. Yeah, you, we uh, the one motor that I built was in the Genesis car, and uh, he had a 9,600 RPM chip in it, and he hit the chip 
more than he made the shift. Really? Uh, when he left the line, it was like a Mazda. 9,600 RPM in a VW? Yeah. Wow. With with a 60, and this is just a 69 millimeter crank. 69 by 85.5. And so that thing would have to have valve springs from, from the end of the earth to keep. <laughs> uh, we, we had good springs in it, uh, titanium valves naturally. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, we made 200 CFM in an 85.5 bore. And that kind of stout. But uh, what we did is we shortened the connecting rod 600 thou. It was a 4.8 rod. Now, do you shorten it by offsetting, like doing an offset bore, or do you actually cut and weld? You don't cut and weld the rod. No. Called up Potter and said, hey, I need a set of 4.8 rods. <laughs> I guess that's that's the other way. <laughs> that was the yeah. most expensive way, which I didn't think was very feasible. <laughs> but Well, you know, if you're going to go that kind of RPM, yeah, yeah you don't want a Mickey Mouse. You, you, know? you come to win. Yeah, there's a, there's a guy in Sweden, I think, that's building a 1600 uh, CC motor that's turning like close to 10,000 RPM and trying to put out about 200 horsepower. But every well, we, yeah, we uh, we made 180, 180, and with a 1600. Yeah, yeah, but we were only able to get 10, uh, 10 8 compression. So, uh, Bay Burson used to be in my complex. Uh, mm -hmm. We'd just walk out the door and down the sidewalk and in his, and I learned a awful lot about camshafts from him and uh went down to him and told him what the problem was uh one i had a set of shos on it and unfortunately i had 92 percent exhaust intake so i was losing a ton of power also it was a big duration camshaft i had more volume in the piston notches than I did in the combustion chamber. Wow. So I had to take some of the piston notch out. So he ground me a special camshaft. And with that camshaft, we figured we could get to about 12, between 12 and 12 and a half to one. And with that and the camshaft, and killing some of the exhaust, because it was way too much, we figured it would put out well over 200. That's crazy. And 192 gives you two horsepower per cubic inch. We were 1.88 horsepower per cubic inch in that 1600. That's incredible. That is, that is but, absolutely crazy for and naturally aspirated at that. Oh yeah. Mm -hmm. And so, what happened with what was what's the what's the story on the Super sixteen hundred class? Well, the car got built and it was featured in uh, VW Trends. Uh, beautiful car, very well built. Uh, Mike Fawcett was the owner, and he took it out a num number of times. And unfortunately, we had some problems. Because one of the people that were involved in the car, one of the sponsors, used substandard uh, hose. Steel braid. They used the Chinese steel braid, which literally 
disintegrated and went through the carburetors, the fuel pump, everything, just screwed everything up. So we finally got it running right, and we went to Sonoma, and he turned 1312 at 100 miles an hour, uh, black tracking all the way into third gear, pulled it down, and we found the cam was going flat. So then we decided to bump up the compression, change the cam, do some other things, and then he sold the car. And then how, so, many, how many people did you have at the, at the most competing in that Super 1600 class? That was him. Yeah. We, uh, we published the rules, which essentially said, you know, if it's a swing axle chassis, it's a swing axle transmission, you know. Don't take a uh, IRS and put a swing in it, or vice versa. Right. Um, the engine is eighty-five-five by sixty-nine. Don't care what cam you put in it. Don't care what rod you put in it. Don't care what you do to the cylinder head. Don't care what carburetor. Oh, really? You build it. It has to be just those two, and that will limit the amount of money. Now, you can put jet rods in it. I mean, you can get totally stupid, but it's not necessary. You can put stock rods in it. Uh, you can put a counterweighted crank. Uh, you'd have to get a set of forged pistons just because the motor is going to spin. And 40, 35 heads, you could go out there, run 12s, maybe 11s. Wow. And... You know, uh, and have fun. And your head also heads up. And you're only running ten and a half to one compression. You said ten and a quarter to one compression is the max you can get out of that bore. That's yeah. With the piston notches, and I had the wrong cam in it. I screwed up. Uh, put the wrong cam in it, and overdid the cylinder heads a little bit too much on the exhaust side. Mm -hmm. So had to start killing the exhaust. Uh, completely different cam profile, uh, machine the top of the piston down, but building the motor was a nightmare because uh, it was the rods were 600 shorter. Head studs, you couldn't even get a nut on the head studs because all the threads stuck out of the head. <laughs> so you had to, the push you, had, rod, you had to tap the, yeah. uh, the, the, or the, you had to, you put a die on the, uh, on the studs. Uh, no, you couldn't because the studs are uh, thread rolled. So the shaft is literally undersized. Oh, wow. And, yeah, what they call it is thread forming. And you get a thread forming tap. And that will take the undersized metal, and it will literally distort the metal to the point towards the correct side, finished size. So... I didn't have any of that, so we had to get that done. Uh, the pushrod tube, the pushrod tubes, uh, completely closed over the pushrod tube holes. We had to put the head in and jacket on the end, and put an actual angle on the pushrod tube, so that when it went in the case, it would be square in the cylinder head. Wow. It was. 
there's a lot. It was a nightmare. Yeah, there's a there's a lot there. I mean, you know, and that's what I think with with these classes. A lot of times, they're trying to make them where they're competitive, and what happens is people just get they go completely over the top, and then it's not a very competitive class. With those motors you're talking about, that 1600 cc motor, that motor's not a streetable engine, or you could drive it on the street. You could. I mean, you know, you'd need to put some fuel in it, but it was perfectly drivable. And ha but it's happiest it, at the top it, end. It, believe it or not, the thing had a ton of torque. Really? Yeah. What kind of torque numbers? You said it was 180 horse? There's 180. I don't know what the torque was. Uh, at the time, we were just trying to get it dialed in. And it dialed in on the dyno, but unfortunately, it didn't work in the car. Mm -hmm. So um, it drove us nuts until we finally figured it out. But uh, we got it figured out. And uh, then he went to Pomona. They had an event right after the Winter Nationals. So the track was, you know, it stuck your shoes off if you walked across right, it. real sticky. Yeah, well, he got no motor, so he got no torque, and had to come off high. Didn't come off high enough, and broke the tranny big time. Oh, wow, with a 1600. Oh, yeah. Well, you, you know, you usually break things when you don't have enough power. <laughs> if you have enough power, you blow through it. But right. When you don't have enough power, it bobs, and it always finds the path least resistance. Now, in the in the earlier days, did you ever did you have much experience with any of the roller bearing cranks? Uh, yeah, I think I might even have one still laying around. Now, what bearings was, are bad. The, what what was the philosophy? The philosophy with the roller bearing cranks was really high RPM because of no connecting well, rod or, or no no cap on the rod. Well, the the roller crank was actually an exceptional piece, but the journals were pressed together. Now, the roller bearings, uh, when you got it and it was brand new, it was so hard, clean, true, you could put it in your case, and you could take the nose of it with two fingers and you could turn the crankshaft. Wow. It, that was on the bearings. You know, the rollers were on the rods. Mm -hmm. It was just an incredible piece. But you couldn't lug the motor. If you lugged the motor, you'd hammer it, and it'd flatten the, uh, the, uh, the roller bearings. So then you got a junk crank. Because you'd have to disassemble the crank, change the bearings, clean everything back up, put it all back together. Hopefully, you didn't break the index. Yeah, that's... Because otherwise, that's you the, got... Well, that's what someone told me, is that those things on a hard launch, you could twist the crank. Well, that's why they welded them and pinned them. Uh, they would take the journals uh, for the race cars, and they'd weld them up. Uh, after a while, what they did is they took the cranks apart, got them back together correctly. Then they turned it for a regular rod bearing and then welded the journals. <laughs> it's, it seems almost counterproductive to put a regular rod bearing in a roller bearing crank, right? Well, 
it's not a roller bearing crank anymore. Right. But the thing is, you took something that you couldn't repair, and you got more use out of it, and it was still a really good crankshaft. Now, and, and those were full circle. The the philosophy of the full circle was like perfect balancing, which I don't think in, it, it's a theory, but I don't think it really works. Does it as good as a counterweight crank? Because you don't see you don't see any of those V eights with full circle cranks, do you? Well, remember um, there are problems with V eights, and if you think Volkswagen people are stuck in the seventies. Domestic people, now I'm not talking about the upper echelon, uh, you know, the not the Darian Morgans or, or any of those, but the regular average guy mm -hmm. is stuck in the 50s. Oh, with the, v, with the V8 motors, huh? Yeah, it, uh, it's, uh, I dealt almost exclusively with uh, Bob over at DMS. Mm -hmm. And I used his six circle cranks for 25 years. Oh, really? And I had my choice of anybody's, and I always picked his. I got a consistent quality piece, and I liked the idea. His seemed to be differ than a regular counterweighted crank. A counterweighted crank, remember this is an opposed motor. So one side's pushing while the other side isn't. So you get a little more um, flex out of the crankshaft or deflection. And his seemed to have less deflection. So instead of the piston pushing down on the crankshaft and the crank flexing and then starting to move, it transferred that downward motion almost directly into movement. So uh, there was a theory that it closed over the case and, you know, it created too much. That's a bunch of happy crap. Yeah. Um, uh, I used them. Uh, we put them in turbo motors, we put them in aspirated motors, we put them in street motors, never, ever had a problem, and all of the motors ran real good. And were, were his cranks new forgings, or were they welded cranks? Well, remember, uh, stock crank is a forged crank. So right. he, he would weld his up, but he did it right. So submerged dark welding, uh, he did it right. He was on the money. Out of 25 years, I had three crankshafts that had to go back to him. Just three. Hmm. Two of them, I screwed up. So he fixed my problem. The one that I sent back, uh, well, that was a problem. But literally one in 25 years. Yeah, that's a good record to have. Yeah, and uh, I had a number of scat cranks that just snapped in half. Uh, those are supposed to be those are supposed to be brand new forged cranks. Oh yeah, they were. Uh, the problem was uh, when they ground them, there was a stress riser on the radius, and they sent out a whole run of these 
because we found three of them. And my shop and McKenzie shop used to be right in front of mine. I had the units in the back. They had the units in the front. You walk out my back door and right into theirs. And they had two cranks. All of them, you could take the pieces. It was all the same journal. Mm -hmm. All pretty much, you know, you could take the end of one and beginning of another and you could almost put them together. Wow. So, uh, yeah, it got to the point where you had to send them out and have them uh, shot peened and to get rid of the stress risers and then repolished and things started to work out. That's pretty but a wild. number of people lost motors, yeah. That's pretty wild. Well, I never lost, yeah. I tell you, we've, uh, you know, we've, we've covered a lot and, uh, I don't know if we've gotten to the end of it. <laughs> it's, I mean, it's, it's really, it's really an, it's, it's an endless, uh, topic, especially when you're talking about VW performance, but you know, you said you're doing something with, I kind of want to talk about what you're doing now and you're, you're really retired kind of doing your own thing and, and doing a little bit of stuff on your own. What's with the manifold that you said that you've just, uh, you've been working on? Well, uh, in order to get a true performance intake manifold, mm -hmm. you have to weld the thing up. There's a, a huge curve to the inside, and uh, a lot of uh, curve to the outside. And I'd have to spend sometimes, you know, 20 hours welding up manifolds to get them to the point where I could actually go through them all the way and get performance uh, or get the performance that you're supposed to get. There's literally more work in the manifold than you have in the head. So uh, instead of doing all of that, I did one and then I had the internals copied and then did a whole new exterior on the manifold. So now, when you get the manifold, it's completely ported, top to bottom. Oh, really? But it's a, it's a round hole. So all you have to do is match the bottom to your port, go up about three or four inches, and you're done. And you have the equivalent to a six to eight hundred dollar set of manifolds. Because welding was so much was so labor intensive and required so much time. Oh yeah, it's. Uh, I've got one. It's on my uh, Facebook page uh, when I had the shop. It's still there. But I put five and a half pounds of rod on it. No, I put five pounds of rod, and then I had to take five and a half pounds out. Yeah, that's incredible. That's, so, that's insane. So you just build it up only to grind it out, and you got to put it yeah, off there. So. so Holy now God. you've got a manifold that will save you incredible amounts of money, time, 80% of the work is done. And uh, once they're polished out, they really look pretty good. Yeah. And they will accept all the way up to a 58-millimeter carburetor with no welding. Well, that's pretty uh, – that's – that's pretty incredible. And you have now, do you have those for sale? Are those available? If people want to get those, they reach out to you on Facebook, or are you just kind of doing it 
however, like at your own pace or do you have sets ready to go or how does that work if someone's uh, looking to get some of these manifolds? Well, I, uh, I had them redone and there was a little problem and I just sent the patterns out. Uh, Marcus picked them up last week. I'm supposed to get them back uh, hopefully sometime this week. I'll go back to the foundry and then we'll do another run. And I don't make big runs because I found out when we were doing the cylinder heads that you order 100 and 40% of them are junk. You order 20, all of them are perfect. All right. That makes sense. So, yeah. So the foundry that I have now, it's all 356, heat treated, they machine bitching. Uh, Tom Costello does all the machine on them. So they come out right on the money. Uh, we can also, if you have, seeing as how we do the machining, if you have a set of CB heads, we can modify the manifolds to fit the CB heads so that you can match them to their ports. Uh, we can put in six millimeter studs, eight millimeter studs. We can move them out. We can move them in. We can pretty much do anything that a customer would want. We also have them in the standard pattern. But uh, so it'll be probably it'll it'll probably be about three months, and I'll have have a new batch. So now, if someone sends you their manifold, like a, a template for their manifold, you can match port it right there. Do you guys do that part, or no? You just machine them. You just do the plug in the holes and stuff, or? Uh, no, yeah, what we would do is if it's a, uh, a CB head because they move the ports up, mm -hmm. and so a standard manifold, you have to do a lot of welding on it just to get the port to fit, where we can change the stud location and everything works fine. Uh, you don't have to do any welding. Uh, you can match it. Everything works good. Uh, so we have that available to somebody if they wish to do it. Got it. Well, that's cool. Well, Fred, I'm glad we got to sit and chat for a little bit, you know, um, for sure. I don't think uh, I don't think we've finished. Uh, there's definitely more to talk about, and I would definitely love to have you on again and uh, do another deep dive into maybe some some more. Uh, you know, I, I really love to come up with if if we could get Fred Simpson's tips on you're you're looking to build a healthy street motor that can be driven regularly on pump gas. You know what would be that combination. You know, that, that's an easy one. Is it? Oh yeah, that's 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 really easy. What would be your combination for a, a, a good running street motor that you could reliably use on a consistent basis and enjoy? I would say either an eighty-two or an eighty-four by ninety-four. Um, a set of heads that are probably forty-two. 37 or 44, 36, somewhere around in there. Mm -hmm. uh, the empty, I suggest the empty heads because it's, it's a good quality casting. Yeah. And they, they have a DRD port. It's an oval port, beautifully done. Uh, Anthony Kika is running the head department at MP. So when seats are put in, they have the right press, they have a good valve job, 
And he's dialed in that CNC to where the ports are absolutely gorgeous. Uh, they come with manly beadlock valves, uh, really good valve springs, chrome retainers. It's just a good piece. Camshaft, if you're talking Ingalls, I'd say a K8 uh, setup. If you want a lot of performance and a motor that size, you need a 48, so I go with a 48 out of the Fs. And uh, that way you can close the hood, you got plenty of clearance, and it's still a 48 throttle plate, and for the street, the circuitry is better on an IDF than it is on an IDA. Sure, yeah, much more drivable. Right, so that combination uh, would work out well. Uh, in that sense, I'd say probably an inch and three-quarter, inch and seven-eighths header. Merge with a single quiet pack on it, huh? Yeah, either a single or a dual. Tom made, brought back the dual. And he actually made his. Oh, really? His sit right. They're the same depth, same height, uh, same attitude, everything on it. He, he cut everything and put it all back together. And uh, it is really nice. Talk about going back. It brings back another time. <laughs> and there's nobody doing that anymore. And that's on his black car. Yep. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a cool car. I gotta get I gotta get Tommy on here one of these days. He's uh, I've I ran into him a couple of times. Said, hey, let's get you on there and let's let's chat about it. And he said, uh, maybe maybe never. <laughs> so we'll we'll, drag <laughs> well um, yeah, he's uh, he's a good guy. Uh, Great guy. Take a real good look at that motor because there's things that he's done that other people don't. Yeah, uh, it's kind of a, a second glance. You know, uh, you take a look at it and then you walk away and something doesn't sit right. And you walk back and you start scratching your head until you figure it out. Yeah, for sure. Well, definitely, uh, you know, Fred, it was great. It was great chatting with you. And uh, I'll, I'll be uh, definitely reaching out to you again in the near future. Okay, sounds good. All right, Fred, I appreciate it. Okay, have Thanks. a good night. Well, I hope you guys liked that podcast. If you did, make sure you go to letstalkdubs.com and support by picking up some merch. Shout out this week to Yuff C. Yuff C says, best old school VW podcast to date, highest quality podcast and content and audio quality about VWs out right now. So we appreciate that. You guys want a shout out on the podcast, go to Apple Podcasts and give us a five-star review. Don't forget to write a review and we'll read it on the air. So until next week, guys, later. Here's a Volkswagen that's big enough. The new VW Fastback Sedan. The Fastback also has the most powerful engine we've ever made. It's air-cooled. Since we made a VW that's a little roomier in the inside, And in the back, where most cars have their trunks, we have a... Come into your Volkswagen dealer. He'll show you where the motor is.